Welcome to the CU Strategy Forum podcast, a podcast designed especially for credit union leaders. Our goal is to bring you the latest strategic resources for growing your profitability and membership. Whether your credit union has 10,000 or 10 million members, we think you'll find today's conversation valuable. We, we got introduced to the speaker last year from Southwest Business Corps, who now uh, he, he became a new member on their, you know, executive team there. And uh, he was from the Federal Reserve, which is amazing. He was a senior vice president there. So giving great insight. So I said, wow, this is uh, amazing that they're coming. He's coming into this industry and that we can tap off of that. So uh, we set up the economic forum uh, here for him to come. And of all the economic speakers last year that were out there at all the all the different uh, uh, different presentations, he may be the only guy that got invited back because everybody else was wrong. <laughs> so you couldn't have predicted it, but he is pretty darn accurate. I have to be impressed because he went a little against the grain on some of his things and he's pretty spot on and he'll go through that in his presentation and stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm going to a high school graduation next year, next week for my nephew. And it just happens to be at the same high school that he graduated from. So he was the first graduating class. So we have a lot in common. Everything in Credit Unions is really is a full circle. And so without further ado, from Southwest Business Corps, I bring you Blake Hastings. Thank you, Rick. It's always good to be invited back. <laughs> Well, um, thank you very much. I've got a lot of data I want to unpack, so I'll go quickly so that we have time for, for questions at the end. Um, so first thing I'm going to do is talk to you about what I said last year. I call it the accountability slide. I'm going to tell you what I predicted last year and how it actually turned out. Then we'll talk about current economic conditions, the outlook, and, and what it means for financial institutions. So here's what I said a year ago. Uh, I, I, if you recall, a year ago, the first and second quarters, GDP was actually negative in the United States. And I said that I expected it would rebound in the third quarter, soften in the fourth quarter um, um, considerably and, and you know, as we went forward. Um, so that, that did occur. The, the, the economy rebounded quite well in the third quarter. It, it was up over 3%. Uh, and it was slightly down uh, from that to 2.6% in the fourth quarter. Um, I expected it to be a little softer than that. So I missed in terms of the, le the level, but I got the direction right, if you will. Um, the real slowdown came this quarter, or the first quarter of this year, when we went to 1.1%. So I was off a, you know, a quarter in terms of what I thought was going to happen in terms of the slowing of the, of the U.S. economy. I did say that the odds of a recession were about 30% within the next year or so. We did not have a recession uh, in, the, in the past year. A lot of people thought we were in one uh, after the first and second quarter were negative, but we weren't. Uh, the jobs continued to be too strong. For, for there to be a recession. Uh, that's going to change. I'll show you later. I, I actually am predicting an, uh, a recession in my outlook uh, going forward this year and into next year. Um, I, I expected growth in uh, multifamily and industrial loan growth would, would continue to be strong, and it was. It was up 13.5%. Um, I, I said mortgage would be weaker but not falling off a cliff. I totally missed on that one. It did fall off a cliff. Um, mortgage rates went sky high, and we saw uh, levels of mortgage underwriting, you know, or, or mortgage lending uh, drop by 75, 80%. At SWBC, we have a mortgage company that's in all 50 states, and our volumes dropped uh, to the tune of about 75, 80%. So I was, I was off on that. Um, <clears throat> I, did, I did say I thought most of the run-up at that time in mortgage rates uh, was, was, was over. I didn't think it would go up much higher. It did go up quite a bit more, went all the way up to 7.1% before falling back a little bit at the end of the year. So uh, off on that. 
Uh, I did say I thought home prices would still increase 7 to 10% year over year. They did go up 5.6, so not a big miss uh, there. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, auto loan demand uh, should be strong uh, for, for new vehicles uh, and uncertainties for used. So we did see continued growth through December, uh, albeit at a slowing pace, um, with a new up uh, 19 or 22% and in, in used 19%. Uh, I did say uh, I thought auto prices would begin uh, declining from these unsustainable levels, and we did see that. Uh, in fact, we saw year-over-year -year prices turn negative in, in November, so that decline in, in auto, used auto prices uh, that, I, that I forecasted uh, did come true, and it has continued through the beginning of the, of the first part of this year. Uh, and I did say con consumer credit would grow, um, and it grew at a double-digit pace, over 15%. Uh, uh, you know, over the years. So most of what I said did come true. I did miss on a few things, but this is called accountability. And, and since many of you were here last year, I thought I'd just sort of show you that. So let's talk about where we're at today. Obviously, we have to start with inflation because that's been the driver of everything, particularly monetary policy. And you can see from the peak of inflation back in, in, in June of last year, where it, when it hit 9.1% headline inflation, we've made really significant progress um, uh, the headline inflation, the blue line there, is the one that includes food and energy. Uh, the red line is CPI minus food and energy. And the green line there is PCE, which is another measure of core inflation that, that's actually the Fed's preferred measure. And you'll notice a couple of things. You'll notice that the red and green line, they started to come down, and then they kind of flattened out. So progress on inflation was, was moving along, and then it just sort of got sticky. It, 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 and this is really, as I was telling audiences late last year, this was sort of expected. There's some low-hanging easy fruit, if you will, for inflation, commodity prices, things like that, that move quickly. And then there's the stickier stuff that has to do with housing and wages and things like that that tend not to come down as quickly when you're, when you're you know, sort of uh, correcting for an inflationary environment. So you can see that. And the last data reading, you can see that um, essentially headline inflation was flat uh, uh, over the last month. We did see some improvement in, in the uh, uh, headline number, just a little bit of tick down. And we don't have the PCE numbers yet. So, so goes inflation, so will go the U.S. economy. The more quickly inflation comes down, that means the Fed can stop raising rates uh, and not have to hold rates higher for longer, uh, meaning a, a, a less desirable outcome for the economy, a slower uh, growing economy or even a shrinking economy. Um, and obviously, the opposite is true. The more inflation stays up and stays sticky, it puts more pressure on the Fed to, to either keep raising rates or to keep those rates higher for longer, which means a, a much uh, uh, you know, worse sort of outlook for the economy. So that's why everything's going to revolve around inflation. Stripping, going deeper into inflation and looking at some of the component parts that are causing this stickiness, um, about 30 to 40 percent of the overall inflation index is the cost of housing. And that's reflected by the blue and red lines you see on this chart. We have rent and owner's equivalent rent, uh, which are two measures of housing, the cost of owning a home or the cost of renting uh, an apartment or a house. And you can see that these continue to go up uh, in the inflation uh, indexes, but they're starting to flatten out. Some former colleagues of mine at the Dallas Fed did some really interesting research where they showed that from the time home prices peak uh, in the market to the time rents peak, it takes about a year to a year and a half. There's a lag effect for that. And if you think about it, there's sort of a logic to it. If you're a landlord and you own uh, a, an apartment building, for example, and you raise your rents by 10%, 
it's going to take at least a year, maybe a year and a half, before everybody sees that change in their rent because not everybody's rent renews or, or, or expires at the same time, right? So there's sort of this lag effect that's feeding into these inflation numbers. And you're starting to see that predictable peak because home prices peaked about a year ago, actually a little, little less than a year ago. So the good news is this component of inflation that's been causing it to stay high is rolling over. You can see it starting to roll over. And I expect it will continue to come down nicely, and that will take pressure off the Fed. The other component of inflation that had been causing things to stay high was services, the cost of services, excluding housing. And this is all about wages, you know, because we know the, the primary cost input to services is people. It's workers, right? It's, it's, it's labor. And you can see that this green line has actually started to come down nicely. And this is a positive sentiment for the Fed. And it's one of the reasons why I believe the Fed is done with rate hikes, because they were really focused on service inflation. Uh, Chairman Powell spoke about it quite a lot in his press conferences. And you are starting to see that come down nicely over the last number of data readings. So good news uh, on, the, on the inflation front, it looks like things are, are, are rolling over, but it's going to take time. It's going to be sticky coming down. It's not going to come down as, as fast as we'd like, um, which will keep pressure on the Fed to, to, to not make any changes downward on rates. So looking inside the labor market, driving those wages that I was talking about before, uh, we are starting to see demand in the, in the, in the labor for, for, for labor soften a little bit. Um, the most recent reading uh, that you're looking at here of the ratio of openings for jobs versus unemployed people is 1.7. That means there's 1.7 jobs open for every unemployed person in America. And you can see the numbers on the left. So it's about 9.6 million job openings. That's down uh, about a little over 1.5 million from the December reading. So demand is cooling for labor. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why wages have, have started to, to, to cool off just a little bit. Um, and there's 5.7 million unemployed persons. I would submit to you that not all 5.7 million people who are unemployed are employable. Um, being realistic about it, not everybody wants to work necessarily or has the skills to do it or, or the other you know, um, uh, social skills and things you need to be successful in the workforce. So really, the supply of workers is, is much tighter than even this chart is suggesting. But it is moving in the right direction. And that's taking some pressure off the wages. And you can see that, that the, the jobs reports have been very positive. We need about 90,000, 70 to 90,000 new jobs added to the economy every month to keep up with the population growth, with the workforce growth. We're adding way more than that. April was 253. However, the, the data for uh, February and March were revised downward by 150,000 jobs. Let me tell you why that matters. In my 15 years of working at the Fed, the one thing all the economists talked about and taught me was anytime there's a a bias in the revisions, either a bias to upward revisions or a bias to downward revision, that usually means you're moving into a faster or slower period. In this case, they're downward revisions, which means the, the labor force is cooling much faster than the data might reflect. Uh, so there's a bias to the revisions downward, and it's not insignificant. It's 150,000 over two months. Uh, so this tells me that the, the workforce is cooling a little bit faster than the data might suggest. In fact, I fully expect that 253,000 number will get revised downward next month and probably the month after that as well. So um, just something to think about when you're looking at the data. Look at the revisions and look at the trend of the revisions because it tells you a lot of what's going on under, underneath the headline numbers. Looking inside in, uh, labor a little further, one of my leading indicators that I like to look at is temporary jobs. Temp jobs are usually the first to go in a business cycle. 
Um, and because of that, they usually roll over before recessions. And you can, in fact, you can see the gray bars reflect recessions. And you can see prior to each of our last three recessions, including the COVID pandemic recession, temporary hiring began rolling over. Uh, and we're seeing that again in this current cycle. It's a pretty good indicator that we're headed for an economic slowdown or recession, just looking at sort of these, these past tendencies. And so the labor market is softening below the surface. Temp jobs are starting to soften, and again, those are the first to go. Um, looking at inflation versus wage gains, you can see that wages are growing. Uh, last data check, 4.4%. Um, inflation is now, headline inflation is at 4.9%. So inflation is still growing faster than wages. This means the average American consumer is still falling behind in their purchasing power. So even though their wages are going up over 4%, inflation is going up 5 which means their purchasing power is declining. So it's like a pay cut uh, in real terms when you adjust it. The good news is the gap between these lines is narrowing, and that's really what the Fed wants to see. In the optimal world, the Fed wants to see in, uh, wages growing at 3% and inflation growing at 2%, a positive one, uh, uh, you know, in terms of real wages. Right now, we still have a negative half a percent in terms of real wages. Why does this matter? Because the American consumer is two-thirds of the economy, and if the consumer is taking a pay cut, it's going to affect their spending, and that's going to affect the broader economy. So uh, looking further into it, what's been propping the, the, the economy up? What's been propping the consumer up? despite these negative wages they've been experiencing for well over a year now? Well, number one, they've been tapping their home equity. Uh, during 2021, we saw over $3 trillion worth of new home equity added to balance sheets because of the home price appreciation we saw all across the country. And guess what a lot of consumers did? They tapped it like a credit card. They took out home equity. So you can see home equity loans picked up. But look what's happened. It's flattened out. It actually started to tick down a little bit. So what does this mean? It basically means they've, they've maxed out this credit card, so to speak. So the one thing that's been helping consumers stay up is home equity borrowing. That's sort of run its course. So we're out of fuel on this driver. Um, looking at credit card usage, credit cards are, are, are continuing to go up. Credit card usage is continuing to go up. But this is starting to flatten out. And it will continue to flatten out. Why? Because most financial institutions are at this point saying we are not increasing credit card limits. So we're getting to a point where consumers are fast approaching their limits on their credit cards. So this thing that's been fueling growth, you know, just use the credit card. If my income's not keeping up with the cost of stuff at the store, just put it on the credit card. This is going to start to play out uh, very soon. And lastly, savings. Remember all the helicopter money the government dropped on everybody during the pandemic? <laughs> well, at one point, we had $2.1 trillion worth of excess savings in American consumers' The savings accounts thanks to all that money. But you can see where it is today. It's actually approaching $800 billion. So still a big number, $800 billion, but two thirds, or it, it's, it's, it's one third of where it was at the peak. And I can tell you, um, yesterday we had a great presentation talking about people who are living paycheck to paycheck, but not really. Um, this tells you, this really enforces that because this money that's left is not evenly spread across all households. So you can assume that about two-thirds of households, if not more, are already out of savings. They've tapped out. So they've maxed out the home equity. They've maxed out the credit card. They're out of savings. Now you're going to start to see the fact that wages can't keep up with inflation start taking a bite. And sure enough, when you look at real retail sales adjusted for inflation, they're going negative. 
um, and they will continue to go negative, I predict, throughout the, the, the rest of this year, uh, simply because, again, wages can't keep up with inflation, and the consumer is pretty much tapped out of savings and, and credit. Um, and why am I looking at retail sales? Again, consumer spending is two-thirds of the economy. So looking at the outlook, um, the first uh, measure, in addition to that temporary jobs indicator, the best indicator I was trained on at the Fed is the yield curve, specifically the one-year, 10-year yield curve, simply looking at the difference between one-year Treasury rates and 10-year Treasury rates. Normally, there's an upward slope to that curve, meaning that one-year Treasury rates are lower than 10-year Treasury rates, and that's expected because you're going to pay a higher interest rate the longer you borrow, the term premium. Just like in a mortgage, a 15-year mortgage is going to be lower than a 30-year mortgage. The same is true for the federal government. But there are unusual times when the opposite happens, and short-term rates are actually higher than long-term rates. I use the one-year, 10-year because it's more accurate and it doesn't lead to false signals. It's one I was trained on at the Fed. And you can see looking at this chart, every time the yield curve inverts, the one-year, 10-year yield curve inverts, a recession follows within 12 to 18 months, every single time going back 70 years as long as we have data for. The beauty of the yield curve is it's not, it's not subject to revision like a lot of the other data I'm showing you. It's real time. You can look at it right now. I looked at it this morning. It's actually at 131 basis points inverted. So a pretty significant inversion. It's been inverted since July of last year when that 9.1% inflation number came out. And based on history, it's a pretty good indicator that a recession will happen on or about 12 to 18 months from when it inverted back in July of last year. So my outlook for the economy uh, is for recession, uh, and this is one of the main indicators uh, for that. Why does it matter? Because the yield curve affects financial institution behavior. Um, financial institutions borrow in the short and lend in the long, and anytime short rates get higher than long rates, it, it puts uh, pressure on, on margins and, and, and what have you. Now, credit unions have actually been a little exempt from this. Margins actually improved last year on net interest, but eventually it catches up. It takes about 12 to 18 months for deposit rates to catch up with sort of the Fed funds rate and all these other short-term rates. And eventually, uh, you know, you're, 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 the people you borrow from demand higher and higher interest rates, and so that eventually that squeeze happens. What you're looking at here is a survey of senior loan officers that the Fed does every quarter. They just came out last week, <clears throat> and it's looking at how many financial institutions are tightening <clears throat> versus loosening credit standards. And what I'm looking at here is construction and development, CNI loans, auto loans, credit card, and mortgage loans. And you can see that quarter over quarter, um, Financial institutions are 73%, 73.8, so let's call it 74% more are tightening than loosening when it comes to construction uh, uh, and development loans. 46% for CNI, 27.5% for auto, et cetera, et cetera. This is the self-fulfilling prophecy of that yield curve I just showed you on the previous chart. Financial institutions are tightening credit standards, and that's going to, by definition, slow the economy down. Uh, and, that's, and, that, and that's happening as we speak. <clears throat> These levels, you can see, are getting pretty close to where they were during the, the, the worst of the pandemic. And if I took you all the way back <clears throat> to the data for uh, the financial crisis, <clears throat> there, are, there are some of these that are at similar levels, particularly construction and development and CNI. The, the consumer ones are not quite as high as they were during the financial crisis. But again, tightening none, nonetheless, and another reason why I'm, I'm pretty sure we're headed for an economic downturn. Not surprisingly, the U.S. economic index, weekly economic index, continues to weaken. It's not quite to zero or negative yet, but it's headed in that direction, um, and, and I think it's only a matter of time. So put it all together, 
Um, here are the headwinds. Consumer spending is going to become a headwind. It already is a headwind. The last couple of months have been negative uh, in terms of retail sales. Again, depleting savings and, and tapping out the credit cards. Credit conditions have definitely tightened, which was what the Fed wanted. They wanted to slow things down to get inflation under control. That is happening. And, of course, labor markets are starting to show some signs of softening. Uh, even this morning's uh, report that came out today <clears throat> showing that we had more uh, people file for initial unemployment claims last week than the previous week by the tune of about 20,000, 30,000, uh, which is significant. So my outlook is I do believe we're going to have a recession this year. Um, <clears throat> I think it will begin in the third quarter. I think that's where we're headed. Um, the one thing the yield curve and the, the, uh, the temporary uh, you know, labor uh, trends don't tell you is how deep the recession will be or how long it will last. It just tells you you're going to have one. It's sort of a, a black or white thing, a red light, green light kind of thing. So to do that, to see what, what I expect in terms of the duration and the depth of the recession, I have to look a little deeper. Uh, and I, my expectation is this is going to be a mild recession for several reasons. Number one, the financial industry, as I'll talk about in a minute, is going into this with a much healthier balance sheet than we saw prior to uh, particularly the financial crisis uh, over, a, uh, you know, over a decade ago. <clears throat> and because of that, you're not going to see the negative feedback loops that we typically see um, with unemployment picking up to 7 to 10 percent. That causing stress on financial institutions, causing them to tighten further, and you sort of get this sort of negative feedback loop. I don't think that's going to happen, A, because financial institutions are in a much healthier place. B, employers had a really rough time finding workers and keeping workers over the last number of years. We're at 3.4% unemployment. Um, that's pretty much the unemployable rate, right? I mean, there's, there's not much quality labor left sitting on the sidelines. Because of that, most employers, I think, are going to hold on to workers much longer than they typically would in an economic downturn because it was so difficult. And there's actually surveys the Fed has started to do that are showing this where businesses say, I'm overstaffed, but I expect I, I will be keeping the workers I have rather than laying them off. And the percentage of businesses that are, that are answering that is picking up. The percentage of businesses who are saying, I'm overstaffed, but I'm going to keep the workers I have is going up, which tells me that Typically, unemployment goes to 7 to 10 percent. I think it'll peak around 5.5. Couple that with strong financial balance sheets no, and no negative feedback loop. I think this will be a milder, shorter recession, maybe lasting two to three quarters. Um, and once it's over, we're going to go right back to full employment, this, let's say sub 4 percent, uh, probably within two, two quarters after that. So there will be an opportunity for those of you looking to hire workers for about six months, where there may be some workers get dislodged. And they're going to get scooped up really fast. So be thinking about that. Don't wait for the recession to end before you start grabbing some of the available workforce if you need to grow your workforce. Uh, my outlook for rates, I do believe the current Fed funds rate, which is five to five and a quarter, I believe it's the peak. I think they're done. I showed you some of the reasons. Some of these inflation things, particularly services inflation, uh, is starting to come down. Um, however, the financial markets are predicting Three, two to three, right now it's leaning towards three, rate reductions by the end of this year. Let me just submit to you, I think that's fool's gold. Uh, the Fed will not lower rates this year unless something calamitous happens. Um, if everything stays on course, the Fed will not raise or lower rates until sometime in 2024. Why do I say that? Because the Fed said so. They're pretty good at doing what they say they're going to do and signaling the markets, and they've been pretty consistent about that. Maybe one rate height, rate reduction, maybe, but even then I don't, I don't buy it, but certainly not three. So the, the reason is real simple. Why is the Fed saying we're not going to lower? 
because the Fed made that mistake in the late 70s, early 80s. We had the highest inflation in, in modern history in the late 70s. Paul Volcker was chairman of the Fed. He jacked up interest rates to double digits, as we know, much tighter rate tightening cycle than the one we're seeing right now. And guess what happened? They let off the brakes too soon, and inflation came roaring back, and we had a second huge uh, spike in interest rates. It was even higher than the first to crush inflation once and for all, and it eventually worked. The Fed does not want to do that again. They do not want to see a, a rebound of inflation and have to go back to tightening again in 2024 or 2025. Because of that, they're going to leave rates higher for longer to make sure inflation is squashed, it's dead, it's not a zombie coming back to life. They're going to be sure of this. Um, and so that's another reason why I'm very confident that they're not going to lower rates until sometime in 2024. That being said, that doesn't mean they won't start signaling sometime later this year that they see the ability to begin normalizing monetary policy uh, uh, you know, is in front of us, and, and we, can, we can start looking at that. Normalizing monetary policy will mean bringing interest rates back down gradually over time towards something that's in the neutral territory, neutral rate of interest by most economists measure somewhere between 1.5% to 2%, which is basically the underlying growth rate of the U.S. economy or potential. Um, so expect to see that sort of signal to the markets, which means market rates should actually start to come down. They've already started coming down now, but I think they will come down sustainably in the third and fourth quarter, uh, gradually, but sustainably. Right now, we're seeing a lot of noise. We're seeing a lot of bouncing around. I think you'll, you can expect that for the next uh, few months or so. So the outlook for financial institutions, let me begin by saying we are not in a banking crisis. I don't care what the people on CNBC and other people keep telling you. This is not a banking crisis. I worked at the Fed during the last banking crisis. Let me, let me assure you this is not. So just looking at S Silicon Valley Bank as, as a reference point, which is in the green, compared to the blue on the top left chart here of regional banks, so the whole regional bank population, you can see that the percentage of accounts that were not that were FDIC insured for Silicon Valley Bank was 3%. And you can see that it's closer to 35% for regional banks. So, so Silicon Valley was, was, was a very unique, poorly managed, I would argue, institution that uh, had a lot of risk uh, in, in its portfolio. The one thing that was fascinating about this episode, in the 15 years I worked at the Fed, we talked about concentration risk a lot as it relates to the loan portfolio. Too much concentration in CRE, too much concentration in and, you know, CNI or whatever it might be. And so we managed uh, the institutions we regulated on those, those sort of concentrations. In fact, we put caps and limits on how much concentration they could have. We never talked about concentration risk of the deposit portfolio. And so one of the things that was fascinating about Silicon Valley Bank, Silic uh, Silvergate, um, <clears throat> and, and, and the others is they had a concentration risk of all their deposits coming from one sector, the tech sector which we have learned is very interest rate sensitive. And as interest rates ballooned for tech companies, guess what they did? They started withdrawing their savings to make payroll and deposits began plummeting. And then all of a sudden, uh, we now learn that a bank run can be fueled by Twitter. Um, and instead of something taking days and weeks to mature, it happened in hours and minutes <clears throat> and money was flying out of the bank uh, at faster speeds than any regulator ever thought could happen. Uh, and so the regulatory uh, institutions were a little unprepared for this. But the bottom line is the rest of the industry is in a much better shape than Silicon Valley Bank. And, and again, if you look at tier one capital ratios, uh, the overall financial institution is, is still pretty, pretty strong overall. 
So I'm not going to sit here and tell you there won't be a couple of other institutions that might not go under. A rapidly rising interest rate environment sometimes can get caught people caught in that asset liability mismatch trap. Uh, but overall, the institution, the industry is well capitalized. We are not in a crisis. We're not seeing massive defaults on loans. Some worry about commercial real estate loans resetting. I'll tell you that it's about 500 billion, which sounds like a large number. It's really not a large number in the overall scheme of the financial industry. So there's not a whole lot of systemic risk built into the system like what we saw during uh, 2007 and 8 when things did, you know, did go down quickly. Um, looking at credit unions, very well capitalized um, overall. You can see anything over 7% is considered, considered well capitalized. The industry is at 10.8%. So the credit union industry in particular is extremely well capitalized and well positioned to brace this, this sort of economic slowdown that we're seeing coming forward. Um, uh, sorry, this is getting chopped off a little bit. But just looking at sort of the strengths and concerns for the, for the credit union industry, uh, as of Q4, you can see that some of the strengths, still a healthy ROA. Net interest margins actually went up 27 basis points, 2.86%. That's pretty darn good, especially in a rising interest rate environment. I think that will reverse this year. Uh, it'll come down a little bit as we continue to see short-term rates uh, uh, you know, being, being up. Uh, operating expenses are only up three, three bips. Um, so anyway, lots of strengths. In terms of possible concerns, and I emphasize they're minor concerns, really, deposit growth slowed. But, if, but what I said was growth slowed. Deposits were still growing at the end of last year, not shrinking for the credit union industry. So this idea that there's this huge deposit outflow has not yet materialized. Investments uh, are down, uh, as they were for banks uh, as well. So a lot of the treasuries and other things you were holding, they went down in terms of their market value because interest rates went up. Uh, and so we saw that sort of affect some of the ratios, but again, not enough to, to cause concern. Uh, and delinquency ratios are picking up. Um, and charge-offs are, are up as well. So looking at act, lending activity, uh, you can see I think mortgage activity uh, is, is bottoming out. Um, looked like it came back to life in early in January, and then it went back down. I think we're going to bounce around along the bottom here for a few more months. But I expect by the third and fourth quarter, you're going to start to see mortgage demand pick back up. I think market rates will come back down a little bit. The spread between the 30-year uh, mortgage and the 10-year Treasury is at 300 basis points today. It's normally around 200 basis points. So I think there's a 1% give on mortgage rates just right there if, they, if things renormalize. So I expect to see things will be more constructive. And I think the bottom for home prices will be around the same time, around the third to fourth quarter uh, of this year. Um, looking at auto lending, it continues to go negative uh, year over year. So it is slowing. I expect this to continue to slow uh, through the course of this year. Um, looking at the value of auto loans, so again, I told you a year ago this worried me, uh, and rightly so. You can see the top chart is indexed back to 1982. The bottom chart is simply looking at year-over-year -year prices, uh, just looking at two different measures. Bottom line is there is still more downward pricing to come for used autos. However, I don't think it's going to drop nearly as fast as it, it went up because of two, of two things. One, new car inventories are still not back to 100%. In fact, new, new, new car producers are kind of toying with the idea of more just-in-time type of, of deliveries as opposed to having you know, huge inventories on dealer lots. The dealers certainly would like that. Um, the other thing that's going on is all these years we've been underproducing new cars. Well, guess what that's doing to used car supply? It's starting to now affect used car supply. The pipeline of new vehicles feeding into the used car 
uh, uh, you know, inventory is, is also depleted. And because of that, I think you're going to see a slower bleed on used car prices uh, uh, than maybe I first realized. And you can see that. The line's coming down, but it's coming down on a much slower slope uh, uh, than, it, than, it, than it went up by. And I expect that to continue. That being said, you want to continue to watch those loan-to-value ratios carefully. Uh, they, they're they're, they're going to be dicey for the next couple of years. Not surprisingly, uh, the amount of negative equity is picking up. So looking at the average equity, uh, uh, negative equity in, in cars, uh, used cars across the country today, about five, about five and a half thousand dollars. I expect that to continue to come up as, again, used car prices continue to migrate back down to the, to the mean. Uh, expect that to, to continue to be an issue. So as people come in and want to roll into new cars and new loans, you're, you're going to be dealing with some, some increasing negative equity. And be careful with that because those LTVs are going to be sharp. Looking at delinquencies for autos, this is within the credit union space. You can see, um, uh, particularly right, right here, uh, see if I could, is there a pointer? Anyway, you can see the second column, um, 30 day delinquencies uh, at the beginning of 20, or at the end of 2019 were 2.4%. We're back up to 2.3% as of the end of last year, so almost back to pre pandemic levels. 60 day delinquencies on the far right are actually above their pre-pandemic levels. This will continue. I fully expect uh, to, to see auto delinquencies go back beyond their pre-pandemic levels as we continue to see the consumer's balance sheet deteriorate a little bit and we do head into a recession. I don't expect it to be cataclysmic. I don't think it's going to drop off a cliff. I think it'll just be something you have to manage. Uh, again, not rates that are not delinquency rates that are going to be anything overly managed. Credit card delinquencies are picking up as well. Again, another thing to watch and manage if you're in the, in the credit card. Uh, lending uh, business. And uh, so overall, my outlook for credit unions, I expect deposit outflows will continue due to negative real wages in the economy. But again, it won't be huge. It won't be anything like what we see with some of the, the regional banks. I do think lending will continue to be soft. However, I expect to see a rebound for mortgages in the, in the, in the fourth quarter in particular. Um, and, and again, commercial loans and, and it will continue. I think credit card borrowing will continue to grow, but it's going to slow quite a bit because, again, we're reaching credit card limits and maxes. I think net interest margins will tighten a little bit. Um, I do think delinquencies will continue to pick up uh, for autos, a little bit for mortgages, although I don't expect mortgage delinquencies to be anywhere back to their pre-pandemic levels, to be frank with you. They're, they're very, very low and stay very, very low. And again, and other key indicators, I think, you know, uh, capital ratio should improve as investments regain, as interest rates start to come back down, that'll mean those those investments come back up. So I think you'll actually see that be helpful to capital ratios. Uh, I think ROA will go down a little bit, only because I think there'll be a little bit of margin squeeze this year that wasn't there yet last year. I think the loan to deposit ratio will drop about 5%, because I think loan demand will cool off faster than any outflow of deposits. Um, so uh, that's sort of my, my thinking around that that part. And then I think net income will be down about 5 to 10%. But again, nothing dramatic. Um, so normally when you go into a recession, you'd see more stark predictions of, of worsening numbers for an industry like credit unions. I don't think that's going to happen. It's going to soften. It's not going to be as good as it was last year. But it's not going to be bad overall. It's still going to be a pretty, pretty decent year. So let me stop there. I can't believe I got through all that. Um, obviously, this is going to be about risk management. Um, you can read it for yourself. You know, in a rapidly rising interest rate environment, you want to watch your, your interest rate mismatch on your balance sheets. Um, uh, be prepared for these, these delinquencies to pick up. Make sure you've got your collections things in order. You've got good relationships. You're talking to people early, intervening earlier. Um, and again, you, you know, be prepared for decreasing asset prices, particularly on autos. 
and the LTV ratios. Uh, now's the time to be looking for efficiency and productivity. So if you're thinking about technology things, do it now because when we come out the other end of this recession, labor is going to be tight and there just isn't enough labor in the United States overall to supply the demand that we're going to have. So we're going to have to find smarter ways to do it uh, with less labor. Um, that's just going to be the, the, the secular long-term trend that we're seeing. So let me stop there uh, with about 10 minutes to go and see what questions you have I could avoid answering. Yes, sir. So the one thing that the Fed will always remind us is that monetary policy looks, works with a long and variable lag. So from the time they start raising rates to it actually affects, you know, uh, the broader economy, it takes time. And so I think we're in that lag moment where the Fed is like, okay, we've jacked this thing up 500 basis points from where we were when we started. That's pretty dramatic, even by historical standards. Now we want to give a lag and see how things mature. If we're two, three quarters from now and inflation's still hovering around that 5% level, there could be pressure on the Fed to, to go up a little further on, on interest rates, but I just don't see that happening. Because again, when I deep dive into the data of what's driving those inflation numbers, the things that have been causing it to stay high are now starting to roll over. And, and pr they were predicted to roll over because of these lag effects with housing costs affecting rents and all these things. So I just don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but yeah, if, if there's a scenario where inflation revs back up or, or doesn't come down, yeah, the Fed could go a little higher. That would be, that would be their solution. Um, just, that's just not my forecast, but that would be their, their tool. Yes, in the back. Yeah, so should the Fed be concerned if they do that? So inflation is always and everywhere a monetary policy phenomenon. Milton Friedman said that, and I believe that to be true. So even if the federal government, through fiscal policy, is stimulating the economy and overheating the economy, causing inflation, the Fed has the tools to combat that by simply raising rates and, and reversing those, those pressures. So um, should the Fed be concerned about it? Yeah, if they did, it would just mean the Fed might have to raise rates more. Uh, but I'm not worried about it because the good news is um, the Senate's controlled by one party, the House is controlled by another, which means nothing is going to happen. <laughs> so at least from that perspective, the prospects of more helicopter money are pretty much off the table uh, at this point. So I'm not too worried about that uh, in the near term. Yes, sir. Yeah, we're playing with fire. Um, the, the debt ceiling is not an issue you want to, to, to jerk around with too much. The last time they did this, uh, it actually hurt our, our credit rating, um, which didn't have a huge effect on, on interest rates, but it could have. It didn't because we were at a, at a different period of time with policies and where we were in the economy and all that. Um, if we were to default on our loans, uh, as a federal government, it would be pretty cataclysmic for the U.S. economy, and that's not hyperbole. It really would, because if the U.S. if the if if the U.S. debt loses its 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 credit and and therefore interest rates skyrocket, 
There is no solution for the Federal Reserve to solve that. So again, a 30-year mortgage is usually priced off a seven or 10-year treasury, right? Whatever the prevailing treasury rate is, you add the borrower's risk premium and that's your mortgage rate. Well, if the default, if the treasury defaults, then all of a sudden the interest rate on that underlying seven to 10-year treasury shoots through the roof and now a mortgage is 15%. And you wanna talk about putting the brakes on the economy, it'll be, it would be a deep dark recession. It would make, I think it would make the financial crisis look like child's play. It's that serious, it's that dangerous. Um, so they're playing a giant game of political chicken right now. Uh, I am confident they'll blink because they can't. They have to blink because the, the alternative would be irresponsible. Now, that's not to solve for the fact that we have long-term fiscal policy problems. We cannot continue to run deficits forever. Eventually, the bond markets will discipline the U.S. You know, through, through higher rates and what have you. But right now, we're getting away with it because there's so much liquidity and all that. But, so we eventually do have to deal with these fiscal issues that are facing us. We have a lot of unfunded liabilities to the tunes of 50, 60 trillion dollars over the next you know, 70 years that are not sustainable. Um, and we'll eventually push up interest rates you know, because of that. So we are gonna have to get our fiscal house in order. You just don't do it with a default, you know, threatening a default as part of, the, a, a part of that exercise. That's, that's a dangerous game. And even if we don't default and we come really, really close, that doesn't mean some damage won't get done just because we got really, very close. It happened last time. We got downgraded on our credit rating. It could happen again, and you know, the only good news saving the U.S. is for China and some other investors around the world that have tons of liquidity, there's no other bond market in the world that can absorb the amount of liquidity China has, Saudi Arabia has, and all that. I mean, the Swiss bond would, bond would be more preferable, but it's a very shallow market. The, the largest and deepest uh, credit market in the world is the U.S. Treasury. Second is, is Japan. And you know what third is? Italy. I don't know that I'd bet on Italy. <laughs> you know, so if you're China, where else are you going to go? If you're the Japanese, where else are you going to go if you have excess liquidity? So we're going to continue to get away with it. But if we keep pushing the limit, it, it's not forever. And people will look for alternatives. And that will ultimately cause the cost of borrowing in the U.S. to go up dramatically and really hurt the economy. It's hard for me to put a number on it. It's that, it's that dramatic. Other questions? You, you had one. You had the same question. Okay. Other questions? Yes, sir. With so many conversations about like Bitcoin, um, is that something that's going to definitely impact credit unions? Say it again. Uh, with so many conversations about like the U.S. transitioning into like the Bitcoin. Oh, you mean like a digital currency? Um. So I still talk to a lot of my former colleagues at the Fed, who are looking at the possibility of the Federal Reserve having a digital currency. So they call it a central bank digital currency, a CBDC. And they've been doing studies on this and, and what have you. I'm not sure how much you get from having a digital, a central bank digital currency that we don't already have. I mean, essentially the dollar is digitized. I mean, we move money with our phones. Look at Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> Ask them how they feel about it. I mean, it's pretty digital already, right? So money moves quickly. Uh, there are some benefits that we don't have today. They're very esoteric in terms of the benefits of having, but is a risk to financial institutions? No, I, I don't see there being any risk to that because it'll still be uh, a full faith, you know, um, uh, currency backed by, you know, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government, uh, full, faith, full faith and credit kind of, kind of thing. So I don't see there being any risk to that. Now, that being said, the other digital currencies that are out there, it, there's a lot of risk in that. Um, and anybody who tells you they're currencies, I would 
challenge that because the definition of a currency is it's a store of value, it's a medium of exchange, and when it comes to those things, I would argue, let's just take Bitcoin, it's neither of those two things because its value goes like this, and I don't know anybody who, who uses Bitcoin to do exchange of services and goods. It's just not because of the fact that it's so volatile. So it's really just an asset that, that it's a speculative instrument. And I think the idea that Fed is toying around with is, is there a role for a central bank digital currency? Does, and are those esoteric value adds worth the expense and time of doing it? I, I'm not convinced, but we'll see. But no, I don't, I don't think there'd be any threat to the financial industry. I think the biggest threat to the financial industry who are involved in digital currencies today is the regulatory world is always behind creativity and innovation, and they're eventually going to kept up, catch up, and they're going to regulate this space a little more tightly because there are a lot of people getting burned, losing a lot of money, uh, theft, pilferage, you know, the people hacking and doing all that. So I think, I think there's some risk, regulatory risk for the current digital currencies that hasn't fully manifested yet. Uh, and, and we can send this presentation out to everybody afterwards. In fact, there's a lot of charts that I didn't show you in the so-called back of the tray. Uh, I was prepared for questions, and I had some charts on housing data in particular that I think you'll find very interesting. I've got a market-by-market market look at which prices are moving in which ways. Actually, I think home prices are starting to flatten out. The drop is starting to flatten out a little bit, um, search some early signs. So anyway, there's more data there if you're interested in it. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Appreciate it. Today's CU Strategy Podcast is brought to you by 454 Creative, a digital marketing agency with extensive experience developing websites and marketing strategies for credit unions. 454 Creative is ready to help design your brand, define your strategy, and deliver your story to your community and grow your members. Visit 454creative.com slash CU today to learn more and get a free website review.